Thanks for listening to the second in our series of C-Suite podcasts. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and in today's show, we are aiming to work through the minefield of rules and regulations that is the social media world of the pharmaceutical industry. I'm therefore delighted that we have covered off three parts of the communication process uh, with my guests this week, as we have representatives from a pharma company, along with a marketing services supplier to the industry and a key online channel for the sector. Joining me here in the studios are Jill Hayes, Global Director of Communications for R&D AstraZeneca, Christian Gardner, Director of Media Services at PharmaForum.com, and Dr. Mark Hooper, a Director at Converses Medical, a translation and localization agency that specialises in this sector. So thanks to all three of you for being part of the show. So Christian, before joining PharmaForum, you actually led the digital strategy as part of uh, the global external communication team at AstraZeneca. So I thought it made sense to put the first question to you. As taking account of all the strict regulatory restrictions you had to follow in any form of communication to consumers, it would be good to know where you even started when it came to posting information on social media on behalf of the company. Sure. So the first thing I'd mention is, um, you know, when we talk about pharma and social media, I think it's really important just up front to say, you know, it can be a little bit of a minefield, but it's not impossible. It's often seen as a, a big, bad, scary world. And I think, you know, the, the really important thing to say is up front is that, you know, people are using it in pharma. Uh, and I think I think there are improvements, but there are, you know, there's a long way to go. So, so when I was at AstraZeneca and across the industry, what tends to happen is that there's a, a clear standard operating procedure for each of the social media channels, and that would have been that would have been worked up in terms of the uh, the regulations in that particular region or country. So essentially, each each channel has a, a procedure that would work in terms of the the approval levels that content needs to go through. And then, like with any with any comms channel, you'd think about your audience, you'd think about the sort of message that you want to place. Uh, you'd run it through that clear approval process uh, and then post it on that channel. And then, you know, the really important thing, again, thinking about any industry with social media is, you know, once you've actually posted it, of course, that's only the beginning. So the really important thing from there on was, was to monitor that update and make sure if there's any engagement, that's that's dealt with and responded to correctly. OK, well, we'll come on to monitoring in a, in, in a little while because that's one of the things I wanted to um, sort of explore. According to some research by Accenture last year, over half of pharmaceutical executives list um, mastering multi-channel marketing and improving digital effectiveness within their top strategic priorities. Again, Christian, this, this one's for you, but g- given your role when you were there included when you were at AstraZeneca included updating a global website, Twitter, YouTube, blogs, all, all the different aspects of social media. How, how much buy-in did you find your team had from the board level in, in particular? And, and you know, how much did they see the importance of what you were doing? I think there's a growing acceptance, both in the pharma industry and, and others, that social media is becoming so central to communications and you know, really has to be considered in terms of budget, size of team, resource. So I think we're seeing a you know a real growth of acceptance there generally. When I was at AstraZeneca, I was I was actually very lucky to be part of a team that was led with that mindset. So one of the projects I led was launching an external science blog called Lab Talk, which at the time uh, for AstraZeneca and in the pharma industry was you know it's, it's a big step. Uh, you're opening up to engagement. It's it's another channel to monitor and manage. But we managed to get that through, and that was very much to do with the leadership and the buy-in we got from them. So it wasn't just a green light and go with it. But there was there was genuine support and buy-in from that leadership as well. You know, opening doors with regulatory and legal, pulling together approval models that would really help that channel work, uh, and and you know made our jobs a lot easier. So how long, how long was the process to get that all through? That's a good question. <laughs> um, so the, I, I joined the company in February of that year, and we had it live by September. Right. So it, it, you know it was a pretty quick turnaround, and the, you know there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes into to making that happen. Yeah. 
But as I say, yeah, the, the leadership buy-in, and that was very senior leadership buy-in, uh, which it had to be with a new channel like that, was was very important. Excellent. Well, Jill, you're at AstraZeneca. Do, do employees at the company, are they given guidance as to what they can and can't say in terms of the best ways of using their own personal channels, You know, given the sensitivity of some of the roles, obviously, in, in some instances? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, AstraZeneca is pretty standard in, in, in the fact that it's black and white. We are encouraged and supported to keep our business social media completely separate from our own personal social media even insofar as we can't use our work email address as our login details on our own private social media accounts and in that respect it's really clear obviously there are a lot of um, intellectual property issues Mm. and confidentiality issues around sharing what we see at work and what we're working on but um, at the weekend when we were over in um, America at this big congress, a big cancer congress. There were lots of tweets on site, from the site, both from delegates, so doctors and people who were attending, and also from employees just taking photographs of the booth and tweeting it. So um, those things are totally, uh, you know, totally fine. The other thing that we find employees do a lot is actually retweet or favourite our corporate tweets. And that, again, is a, a way that employees engage with the company. OK, so, so how does social media fit in terms of the actual role that you do there within the R&D team, you know, so I'm thinking in terms of sharing the progress that you're making in, say, development of some of the new drugs, for example. Yeah, so I'm very fortunate in my role because our company strategy is really clear. We've got three pillars of it. And very basically, the first one is to achieve scientific leadership, and that's where my role fits in. So my job is to report or lift out these good news stories around drug progression It can be quite a dry story to say we've moved from phase one to phase two in this particular drug. So what we do externally is to try and um, generate engagement. So scientific leadership and achieving it means we have to attract the best scientific brains to the company, whether that's in-house as employees, but also through open innovation and driving collaborations with academia and other commercial companies. And that means that we need to show them some of the detail and be as transparent as we can be. So an example I'll give you, Christian referred to LabTalk, which is our our blogging uh, platform. And what we do is we ask our scientists, we pick one of the progressions, something we're going to talk about, and shine a light on the specific cool science that lies behind it. And we get our scientists to talk and explain what they've been doing in their work. And that's what goes on to lab talk, because my audience is the scientists and the academics who we want to do business with. And really, that's the driver of the conversation. We're as transparent as we can be, but we can't show you everything. The idea being, if you read this and you're really interested, get in touch with us. We'll put you under a confidentiality agreement. Mm. Then we can show you everything that we're working on. Okay. Well, it's interesting you're talking about the kind of people that you're talking to and thought leaders. It's it's an area that I wanted to come back to you, Christian, now that you're at um, Pharma Forum. According to your LinkedIn channel, the site provides a digital podium for communicating thought leadership and innovation within pharma. Um, and your aim, I've done my reading on this, uh, is to connect healthcare thought leaders to support the pharma industry in delivering innovation. But the question I've got is how easy is it, um, obviously in your opinion, to, to get senior execs within the industry to use social media, given potentially it opens up an easy channel for protest groups to, to, you know, to reach them, something obviously that a lot of pharma companies have to deal with? I think there's a number of ways of doing it. Often when you think about uh, senior executives and and CEOs using social media, the first thought that comes to people's minds is them using their personal Twitter feed and opening it up to the world and start talking about the work that on behalf of their company. 
there are a number of, of sort of middle grounds, if you like, of building up towards that. So to give a couple of examples, LinkedIn uh, made a couple of changes to, to their functionality in April of this year. Uh, one of them was to enable uh, a functionality called Publisher. So until now on LinkedIn, you've had people like Richard Branson providing these sort of long updates because um, he's been seen as a kind of, you know, sort of a celebrity key opinion leader. But what LinkedIn are doing now is they're allowing people like you and me to also apply for that functionality to give us the opportunity to write these lengthier updates that we can embed video and, and rich media into as well. A CEO or a senior exec would fit that uh, criteria very well. They're just the sorts of people LinkedIn are looking for. So I think that's one example of how they can start to use social to, to share what they're doing, make the work a bit more credible but have it in a, a slightly more safe environment. Of course, that would provide um, the opportunity to feedback. So a, a sort of next step of, of safety, if you like, would be using uh, closed groups on LinkedIn. Um, so if, if you know the CEO or that senior exec sees a particular topic on LinkedIn that they'd like to talk about, the chances are there is a group on that and they can apply to be part of that group, share the updates, and they know that it's then a closed group. And um, you know, if anyone is providing feedback that's unwanted, that that will be yep. dealt with by the owner of that group. So so that's fine in terms of a nice controlled environment. What about when crisis communication hits in? Um, how much importance do you think the boardroom plays in terms of social media when it comes to responding to something like that? Yeah, massive. I mean, I've I've worked on crisis comms both in and out of the pharma industry. Um, I think what you've seen over the last five years is a general increase in in the importance of social media in a crisis comms situation. And that goes right up to board level. You know, I, I've been in practice crisis comms scenarios and I've been part of that because social is, is such an important element of that. At the moment, it's very much on a sort of monitoring and, and reactive level. But I think going forward, it may be looked at as a, as a proactive tool as well in a crisis comms situation. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's absolutely board level buy-in for crisis comms in social. OK. I started the podcast talking about regulations. Jill, maybe you could explain, and I know Christian touched on this earlier in his sort of first answer, but who, who in your organisation has responsibility for ensuring what goes on social media is actually compliance checked? I think... Um the lab talk um, example again the blog the science blog is a really good example so in my role I'll be lifting the stories out of the organization these cool science stories the scientists write the blog and um, so I have that responsibility in terms of making sure what they've written scientifically um, is accurate and, and spot on so there may be two or three more people from the science side who need to look at that once that's done I take the story to the um, social media director we have a look at it, and at that point they take it through compliance, intellectual property checks, other legal checks, and then together we do the toing and froing and the tweaking between the scientists and, and all those parties. It's the tweaking that takes the time, right? It's uh, really quick to write these stories, but it's making sure they're compliant is everything. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay, now I'd like to bring Mark into the discussion at this point, and I guess given we're talking about regulations, I should add as a disclaimer that Mark's company is actually a client of mine. But get, given the services Converses Medical provides to the pharma industry, I know you've got some strong views on localization of, of content, Mark, but you know, how do you think a pharmaceutical company can be expected to update their social media channels often in real time you know in the hundred plus languages that their patients may speak yeah okay so the uh, short answer would be carefully so uh, and, and and just uh, think about uh, how you're doing it I, I did some tests today I, I put a couple of tweets that we uh, put out this morning and I tried to uh, put them into Google Translate and get them translated back and then I went to a couple of the guys in our team to translate them and uh, it was a uh, pretty much a disaster 
because a lot of the social media um, language we use is, is shortened and it's put in a certain way so it works in English and we're just putting you know, bold headline statements out there. They don't easily translate, uh, especially through automated. So really you need to be looking at using um, local people. If you're a big enough company, AstraZeneca has local offices so they can use local translation. But really, again, to get the control over your message, you want to, um, there are advantages of doing that in a, in a centralised situation. So use professionals, use people who have got um, experts who can translate your message, back translate it, look at local review. And again, a slightly different model here. If we're looking at um, tweets and, and, um, and urgent and, and faster short-term media, then again, we're not looking at taking a document, spending a long time submitting it to, um, to the uh, regulatory authorities to check, because really we're just doing a corporate communication. So you could do that, again, using fast and real-time translation, but it has to be reviewed and it has to be people-based. But again, the translators out there in the world are on email, they can, uh, they can accept text, they can accept a, a fast turnaround. So you could send them a text, send them an email, get a turnaround within uh, a few hours, get it back translated, get it checked, so within a day you could get that message translated. Jill, do you have different uh, feeds for different uh, territories? Okay. Yes, we do. We have um, obviously we have the the global corporate feel, uh, feed, but then we have um, local marketing companies, so national um, national offices who have their own Twitter accounts and will tweet in English and the local language. But again, that's done from there. So thinking about how we're set up, if we've got global business updates, we all know what's been in the news recently about AstraZeneca, so the, the big news items. So they're sent out to the local markets, the corporate affairs teams there. And they're translated locally. Okay, so so picking up on what Mark's you know just talking about there in terms of localization, how do, uh, Christian, this one's for you. In terms of regulations, how do they, um, do they differ across territories? Given the FDA in the US is much more lenient um, than the ABPI here in the UK, and you've got the EMA in Europe. And do you see a time when rules will have to be made consistent across all countries? Um, given information is so easily accessible on on you know certain um, social channels and you know, patients can just log into any forum, really, in, in any territory. Well, I think the easiest way to, to break it down globally in a nutshell is, is thinking of it this way, is that uh, in the U.S., pharma companies are, are able to um, market their, their medicines directly to patients, whereas in most of the rest of the world, they're not able to do that. Um, in terms of the regulation, as you say, in the U.S., uh, the pharma the pharma industry is regulated by the government, by the FDA, whereas in Europe uh, it's self-regulated. Um, so the industry has set up its own regulation groups like the ABPI in the UK, uh, and they have responsibility for, for regulating how pharma uses things like social media and how it communicates. In terms of in the future, and, and your question about will there ever be a, a merging of, of regulations, I think for as long as the US is marketing its medicines directly to patients, I can't see there ever being, you know, a global regulation for that. I think what we, what we, well, what the industry is looking for uh, is more clarity on how to use social media. That's very difficult for regulators because we all know how quickly social media is moving and changing. So they're they're quite reticent to to make those those updates and really clarify their social media regulations. So for me, the the, the way forward is really for for organisations like the ABPI to actually start advocating good examples of social media when they are done properly to say to the industry, hey, look, this is a good example of how to do it. They were compliant. It's an innovative use of social media. Feel free to try and replicate that. So I, th I think that would be a good middle ground going yeah. forward. Okay. Now, 
in preparation for today's podcast, um, as I did with my previous one, I like to do a little bit of research. I read the IMS Institute for Healthcare um, Informatics report from January. Um, and a large section discussed the major legal challenge faced by pharmaceutical companies around adverse drug reaction or ADR reporting. Um, and it said as they're obliged to report all known ADRs to the regulators for the purpose of drug safety. Now, the report went on to say that this means that if the company is monitoring social media channels, then it may also uh, become responsible to report ADRs that come to light in this manner. So, um, but but at, at the same time, by not actually having a formal social media strategy, companies are, are avoiding the regulatory burden. So, Christian, what's your thoughts on this topic? And we we talked about it earlier in terms of monitoring discussion forums. How do you you know how do you go out and monitor all these different areas? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I mean, you know, just going back to what you said there about if they don't have a, a social strategy, they they're not obliged to do it. Essentially, what um, what what they're saying to pharma companies is, if you're not using Facebook, it's not your responsibility to monitor Facebook for for adverse event reporting. If you are and you're engaging with people on that channel, then it, it is something you should be monitoring. So that was very much how I, I would manage it when we were when I was working in house. Of the channels that we were using, uh, we had consistent twenty four seven monitoring, digital listening uh, going on for for any adverse events reported. Um, and for example, on Twitter. Uh, there was a specific feed that responded to any of those adverse events with the guidance on what to do, you know, ring this number if you're in the US or, or get in touch here if you're not. So that, that's a 24-7 that's a uh, digital listening that goes on, and that's, that's cross-industry. For me, I, I think there's a real opportunity here uh, to actually go beyond that. If, if you look at social media, if you think about patients, everyone's using it these days, and um, people are, are giving, sharing a lot more than just adverse event uh, reporting on social media. So I think there's a real opportunity for pharma to actually do a lot more digital listening uh, and really learn from you know that what is real-world evidence uh, from patients. How are they accessing those drugs? You know how are they finding taking them, which would would include adverse events. You know and 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 how do they feel about that in their local regions and markets? Um, so I think in the future that there's a real opportunity for pharma to to go beyond just the listening. Okay, well that on a slightly different uh, topic, that same IMS report stated that the top 100 Wikipedia pages, and, that, and that's a channel we haven't even mentioned yet, um, but the top 100 Wikipedia pages for healthcare topics were accessed on average 1.9 million times over the last year, with the top one being 4.2 million for tuberculosis. So I'm just going to throw this one out to all of you. Um, maybe, Mark, we can start with you. Wikipedia, discuss. Okay, so uh, after you, uh, you mentioned this, I started looking up Wikipedia and, um, and you know, there's um, a stat out there that said the, um, the better source for medical information is other websites such as um, WebMD and uh, Medscape. And, uh, you know, on a lot of the, the pages they reviewed one against the other, the information on Wikipedia was, I don't know, 20, 30 percent worse and, and less accurate than it was on the WebMD. So, you know, there are alternatives out there. And, of course, Wikipedia is only monitored and, um, and looked over by people who actually use it. But again, you know, we can't as an industry start denying that it's there. It's going to be used. It is important to be used. So really, we should be more active and proactive going out there and moderating it ourselves. So not to just put a biased view across, but to put a, a fair uh, view across and to go in there. So, for example, I looked up uh, an example of um, a film called The Constant Gardener. 
and it was based on a book by John Le Carre, and, it was, and uh, it's about a, um, a fictional clinical trial that was done in an African country where people get shot and people get uh, lined up, and you know the trial was done under no principles that I've ever come across. And yet on the Wikipedia website it said this was based on a real event in, Ken- in Nigeria, Kanu, Nigeria. Now, really, it blatantly wasn't. And if you look a couple of clicks through, you get to a website where it describes what happened. And, uh, yes, there were issues with informed consent, but there were no ever any issues with the actual way the trial was run or, or even the, the results of the trial. So, you know, if we want to actually look at Wikipedia, we should be proactive and say, yeah, it's a great way to disseminate the information and let's make sure we have a fair go at the information being a fair set of information not a one-way biased. And um, again, another thing on that is said, in this clinical trial, 11 children died. And it left it there implying that it was because of the clinical trial these children had died. Actually, the drug under trial, which was a Pfizer drug, uh, had exactly the same uh, level of people um, uh, dying in in the trial because they were dying of um, meningitis as the best treatment that was out there at the time. In fact, it was one better off, but it, was, it wasn't statistically d- different. So really, you know, it's the way it's said out there, it's the way it's put out there, and we don't need to go out there and, and use it in, as a evangelical farmer is brilliant, but we want to make sure it's a fair reflection. And that's up to us to get out there and do it, that's not a- to sit here and say we deny about Wikipedia. Yeah, that's a very interesting um, uh, sort of example you've just used. Jill, what, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, when I, I think about Wikipedia, I think about um, patients, general public, um, when they're looking up symptoms and um, different things about illnesses, whether it's their own or family illness, and, and how high up the list of hits that Wikipedia appears. I, I was looking at the question, I was thinking about my own mother printing off uh, what Wikipedia says and marching into the GP with it saying, why haven't you given me this drug? And I guess what I'm trying to say is, certainly in drug development, we try and be very patient-centred. Obviously, we don't we don't monitor things like Wikipedia. We don't, but I think anything that that prompts or encourages a a conversation with a doctor, with the patient around um, what's the best treatment for their condition, is a good thing. Hmm. The whole regulation side and how Wikipedia is put together, I think there are lots of holes in it. However, as a stimulus for getting people to engage with their GP and actually question why they're getting the treatment they're getting, I think is uh, is good. Patient empowerment is always a positive thing. Christian, any thoughts on... Yeah, I, I mean, I'd, I'd echo what uh, what the other two have just said. I, I was also going to pick up on WebMD as, a, as another example. NHS also have a symptoms checker as well. Um, so there are there are other options out there. But I think what this research says is people trust Wikipedia and they're using it every day and there's no getting away from that at all. So I think it, be- it sort of begs the question to pharma, do we have some responsibility to actually contribute to some of that content? Yeah. I know at the moment regulations uh, at a couple of big farmers say you can't contribute to Wikipedia because you're essentially doing it on behalf of the company and that would then have to go through all levels of approval. My sense is you know, these guys are the experts, these are the scientists, people that engage with HCPs, so maybe, maybe there is an opportunity there. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose I should point out at this point as well that if uh, any pharma companies are thinking of contributing to Wikipedia, as we're discussing this, uh, my colleagues on the CIPR social media panel have actually put together a very comprehensive um, guide as to how to use it. So if you go to the website, I'm sure you can find the appropriate link. Mark, I think it's fair to say that you are quite new to Twitter because um, I know you've only joined recently. But given your company supplies the industry with your services, from a B2B perspective, do, does your team follow the pharma companies and, and their various different clinical research organisations on the, on the social channels? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, not just Twitter, but you can you know you can look up the companies. The profiles are on LinkedIn. They're, they have their uh, their websites and and they have their ways of communicating. And it's certainly a good way to get to know your industry. As a way of chasing work and a way of contacting people, I don't like it. I think it's uh, it's like cold calling. It's not something you want to do. So we don't go out there to just go and uh, chase down people because I saw them on LinkedIn. And uh, there is a brilliant uh, uh, LinkedIn profile from one of the guys at a, at a clinical research organization where the third line of his profile is, please don't cold call me. I'm not going to be happy. So uh, um, I understand that. But... It's a brilliant way to get to know and to, to, to get a better understanding of the needs of the, the clients and what the issues are for our clients who are the pharma industry. And it does act as a communication tool. So, again, this is another example of, you know, people will use these media, the social media, to, to look at the companies, to look at what's happening in the pharma companies. So it, that it's, it's a good policy to go out there and control it and, and, and think of it as a communication, as an opportunity, not as a negative, because mm. we will go out and look. People will. It's publicly available. Well, well, in terms of talking about sort of using social media to communicate from a, a personal perspective, and we have been talking now for quite some time, so we're just finishing off our uh, our podcast. But I'd like to finish by asking all three of you how you see social media will be integrated in the pharma industry in the future, and whether or not and it's interesting, Christian, you're talking about um, sort of using LinkedIn earlier. Because um, my sort of sort of final question was, do you think we'll ever get a prolific blogging or tweeting pharma CEO? Um, so, Mark, let's let's start with you. What's your thoughts on on that? I think yes. I think it's not going away. I think the youth uh, are going to become the mainstream, and the, and the youth are fifty percent are using it as their main way, social media channels. So, it must be part of the strategy for companies in terms of communication. And uh, CEOs are involved in communication all the way through down to uh, everybody else. I suspect that CEOs will end up with a social uh, communication assistant, who will uh, probably draft them, write them, and just take uh, notes. But, you know, it happens everywhere. The BBC, you never see the guy actually writing his own thing. Uh, Jeffrey Boycott is interviewed by some guy who writes his view on what happened in the day of the cricket. Same thing could happen with CEOs. They will very easily be able to just have an opinion, talk about what they want, and then somebody else can draft it. But it has to go up there and has to go up there soon. So it will be taken on. Christian, what do you think? I agree. I, I think, yeah, in terms of CEOs, it, it's, it's, such a, it's such a big opportunity for them. I agree that there may be an element of ghost writing going on there and, and support from the comms team, but you know I, I think that's you know, that's what you'll see with, with any uh, leadership communications. I think a nice a nice comparison actually is if you go sort of look at the past ten years and what video has done uh, to give CEOs particularly more airtime uh, and and give companies more credibility and personality. I think that's that's a really good proof point to show. Well, that's that's exactly what social media could do over the next ten years. So, so I think it'll happen, and then, and and more generally speaking, I I think just going back to patients, um, I think we're going to see a lot more patient engagement between between pharma and patients. Okay, we're not we're not able to sell drugs to them. That's that's absolutely fine. That's the way it should be. But I think there's so much more that can be done with patients, both from an engagement and a listening perspective. Okay, finally, Jill, what are your thoughts on that? I'm going to give this um, a bit of an internal um, social media twist. I. Uh have a really good example from the weekend when Pascal Soyo, our chief executive, was over in Chicago at the Big Cancer Congress. And um, he turned up in the exhibition hall with his backpack, wandering around, chatting to people on our booth, on other booths. 
and Twitter, the Twitter uh, feeds went mad with photographs and tweets from delegates talking about how he was there. And of course, my colleagues are uh, consumers of social media as well, so they can see what their CEO is doing. I think that's really important. We set up an internal campaign as a, a, a pilot from the Congress, which was very rough. It was full of video clips. It was full of selfies um, from people attending the event to make the people... Can't be a good selfie. <laughs> so people back in the office felt that they were there and they were connected to it. So what we did was measure um, the interaction and the engagement of people back home from that campaign. And literally... The guys who were there at the event told the story in, in video format and we were testing a new platform back, uh, back in the office. Um, and what we had was an over 400% increase compared to previous congresses in the number of views of these video clips. We tried a bit of viral video, so we put this selfie montage together. On Tuesday night before I uh, flew home, Pascal Sorio emailed me uh, his selfie. So the chief exec <laughs> took the selfie. This is more about the behaviour of the board in terms of engagement, stuff that should come to you very naturally, yeah. not forced, because this is just real and in real life it's how we, we interact and communicate with each other and I think that's one of, for me, a big take-home message for any CEO yeah, or great. board member. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm personally very biased because my background is content and video and the fact that you've got Vine or Instagram and it's so easy to just, like if you're at a conference, a six or 15 second clip and just... I think what it does is it, it brings the, a personality out rather than you know this person that's behind the board you know boardroom door that you don't. And we literally door stop them. <laughs> it's like ten seconds. Come on, camera's there. Yeah. And it's kind of how do you feel about what you've just seen? Everything's about feel. It's not about data because we're talking to a bunch of scientists, right? Yeah. So if you say what did you think about, you're going to get you know a three minute long winded um, uh, bit about you know science. But it's kind of how does how does this make you feel? It's kind of like wow, this is incredible, yeah. and you get that in the moment stuff yeah that's what made the difference this time fantastic well that's a lovely way to finish um so that actually is it for today's podcast um again i want to thank my guests jill hayes of astrazeneca um pharmaforum.com's christian gardner and dr mark hooper of conversus medical thanks also to the team here at usp content for hosting and recording the show and if you want to contact me about this series of podcasts you can find me on twitter too it's at russ goldsmith thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs>